Good morning and happy Thanksgiving. Turn to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19 in your Bibles, please. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. If you're using the Black Pew Bible provided for you, it's on page 741. Page 741, Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19. And as you're turning there, I'd like to open with a word of prayer. Let's bow. Our Father, we thank you for this new morning. We thank you that we can come together to worship you, to hear your word, and to celebrate the ordinances that you've given to us, to celebrate the new life that you've given to some people that are waiting here to get, get baptized and there's nothing happens in this water. It's just common water. It comes out of the tap. But what it signifies is something beautiful. And it also signifies something beautiful when we remember the work of Jesus on the cross when we partake of the Lord's Supper here this morning. So, Father, we want to have our eyes pointed at Jesus. We're asking that you'd open up de- deaf ears and blind eyes and mute voices that we may understand the scriptures this morning. Let it begin with me. Open my eyes, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, and just by way of introduction, I I want to share with you that uh, this story takes place most likely soon after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and it probably was the most amazing miracle that Jesus ever performed. He healed people of diseases, but Lazarus was not sick, he was dead. Four days in a tomb, so much so that my mother's favorite verse from the King James says that if you open the tomb, he stinketh. <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> but uh, he was dead. He was dead and they, uh, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, people were believing in Jesus. They were believing in his deity. They were believing in him as Messiah. They were receiving him as Savior and following him. And they were making, becoming disciples. And so the, the council of the chief priests and the Pharisees, they felt threatened by this. Their, their power was being taken away from them. And so it says in John eleven fifty three that they made plans to put him to death. Jesus was no longer allowed to roam around publicly around Judea and, and Jerusalem, so he had to flee. Uh, but he was going back to Jerusalem eventually to fulfill God, the Father's plan for him. But he comes to a town... In the region of Samaria, between Judea and Galilee, he's actually heading north to go back to Galilee so that he could come back south again and go to Jerusalem. So most likely he was heading back up to Galilee to join the group's uh, family and friends that were in the Galilee region that would then come back south to go to celebrate the Passover, the final Passover of Jesus before he would go and be betrayed and tried and crucified and raised again from the dead. So we come to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 to 19, and it says, follow along as I read aloud, Luke 17, verse 11 says, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, 
praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we're going to look at several things here from the narrative, and then hopefully we'll get several principles that we can learn uh, from this narrative. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm going to give you all of the details nor all of the principles that you could draw from this passage. I'm sure that you'll be able to draw many more uh, as you go home and hopefully meditate on the scripture. But uh, first, I'd like to take a look at the narrative. First, we see the conflict. Verses 12 to 13 describe to us that there were lepers that were need, in need of healing. They were in need of, of cleansing. Now, the leprosy that they experience is probably very different from the modern-day leprosy that we know and, and we call Hansen's disease. Uh, this is the type of disease, modern days, this is the type of disease that not only uh, infects the skin, but it disables the victim. It infects their muscle and their nerves so that they, they actually have problems moving and, and they become disabled. Uh, this, this wasn't the kind of leprosy that they experienced. All the leprosy that's described in the Bible is, is mainly just a skin disease only. But it affected the skin and it would, it would become an infection and, and they would become open wounds. And so we, we know from Leviticus chapters 13 and 14 that God gave the people of Israel laws and how they should handle these, these types of diseases, the people that, that had leprosy on their skin. Well, Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Why don't we turn there, actually? Leviticus chapter 13, your favorite book uh, for doing devotions, the book of Leviticus. <clears throat> Luke chapter 13, verses 45 to 46. Very front of the book, uh, very front of the Bible, first five books. Leviticus chapter 13, 45 to 46. And the reason I'm having you turn there is I want you to see the impact that the leprosy had on, on the victim. Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 to 46 say, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And she, he, she, excuse me, he shall cover his lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, there are two reasons why this instruction was given to the people of Israel. First of all, they did not want a contagious infection to be spreading throughout the camp, to be spreading throughout the people of Israel. So God said, no, they need to identify themselves and they need to go about and tell everyone that they come in contact with, I'm unclean. And they had to live outside the camp so as not to spread the infection. It's one purpose. There's also another purpose, though. This leprosy was a vivid illustration of God's holiness. It was a vivid illustration to the people of Israel to see that not only are they unclean and outside the camp because of contagious infection, but they were outside the camp because God requires purity and cleanliness and holiness amongst his people. No uncleanness could be acceptable in their midst. Now, God was merciful. He provided a means that if they were healed of the disease, if the disease cleared up, they could go to the priest and show the priest and say, look, look, my disease isn't spreading any longer. It's not open wounds. Uh, it's not contagious. And if the priest could examine the wounds on their skin, then they could be brought back into the community. 
They wouldn't have to declare themselves unclean any longer. But you may think this is harsh, but it just shows how serious God takes purity and holiness amongst his people. The sad part about this, though, in the time of Jesus was that rabbinic Judaism took it even a step further. Not only did these people, these lepers, have to be concerned about spreading their, their, uh, their infection to other people, not only did they have to be outside the camp because of God's purity and cleanliness among his people, but then rabbinic Judaism of the day took it even a step further. They added a layer of guilt and condemnation upon the lepers. Alfred Edersheim, in his marvelous work, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, describes what it was like for these lepers to live in the time of Christ. See, the rabbis of the day, they linked the leprosy along with poverty and along with blindness and also childlessness. They linked these conditions to particular sins committed by the victim. So now, not only are you having to deal with this disease... Not only are you having to deal with being isolated and outside the camp, but now you are being looked upon with shame and with guilt. The leprosy was not just a disease. Now, according to the rabbis of the day, it was an outward expression of the sin, the unrepentant sin that was within the victim. In essence, the presence of leprosy was a visible sign to the victim's peers and community that he or she had sinned and had spurned God's progressive warnings to repent. In essence, they were saying they were filthy inside and their condition was an outward judgment for their disobedience. This was not God's word. This is the word of the rabbis, but it was something that was added to the stigma of being a leper. Edersheim in his book goes on to say, if such had been the real views of rabbinism, one might have expected that divine compassion would have been extended to those who bore such heavy burden of their sins. Instead of this, their burdens were needlessly increased. True, as, un- as wrapped in mourner's garb, the leper passed by. His cry, unclean, was to incite others to pray for him, but also to avoid him. No one was even to salute him. His bed was to be low, inclining towards the ground. If he even put his head into a place, it became unclean. No less a distance than six feet must be kept from a leper, or if the wind came from that direction, a hundred were scarcely sufficient. One rabbi would not eat an egg purchased in a street where there was a leper. Another rabbi boasted that he always threw stones at them to keep them far off, while others hid themselves or ran away. To such extent did rabbinism carry its inhuman logic in considering the leper as a mourner that it even forbade him to wash his face. This was the stigma that these lepers were dealing with. They were dealing with the disease. They were dealing with isolation. And then they were dealing with the added stigma of the rabbis of the day to say, you're a filthy on the inside and it's showing up on the outside. Shame on you away from this place. So much so that even some would throw rocks to keep them away. They're dealing with guilt unnecessarily. They're dealing with shame. They're dealing with the realization that I must live outside of the presence of God's people. I'm on the outside looking in. So it's no wonder that we see back in Luke chapter 17, verses 12 to 13, that these lepers saw Jesus and they, they exclaimed, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Wouldn't you do the same? Look at what I'm going through. I've got this disease. I have to live away from my friends and my loved ones, and I'm dealing with this constant shame. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. 
have mercy. They had seen what Jesus had done before. They had seen the mercy of Jesus. They had heard about it and they knew, here is a man that is merciful and compassionate and tender. Perhaps he will heal. Well, verse 14 goes on to describe the healing. It says in verse 14 that Jesus gave a command to show themselves to the priest. Now, what's interesting there, it doesn't say that Jesus went over and touched them. It doesn't say that Jesus declared them to be healed and that their, their, their leprosy was cleared up and then they went to the priest. No, it says that while they were on the way, they were healed. They hadn't been healed yet, but the faith that they obeyed, uh, the faith of obeying the Lord in anticipation of his power, it healed them. They knew the Lord's power. As they went, they were healed. Perhaps they were even still within Jesus' sight. Perhaps Jesus said, go show yourselves to the priests so that you can be declared cleansed and brought back into the community. And perhaps even while they were still in sight, Jesus is watching and he sees all of a sudden there's a transformation. The 10 look down and they see themselves, I'm healed. It's gone. And maybe a jog turned into a sprint. Now they're sprinting to go show themselves to the priests. See, this was a different type of miracle. Many times before, Jesus had showed a personal, intimate touch. And certainly that is the heart of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Mark 1, 40 to 45, Jesus appears before another leper. He, he encounters another leper. And this time, remember all the stigma that goes with a leper. They're to be set apart, put away because of their, their disease. But Jesus reaches out the hand to this leper. Could you imagine those standing around him? <gasps> what is he doing? He can't do that. But Jesus, with the touch of compassion and mercy, touched the leper and healed this leper. But this is a different kind of miracle. All Jesus has to do this time is speak the word, and they were healed. This time, this wasn't just merely a personal, intimate touch of compassion and mercy. This was showing forth the mighty power of God that rested upon Jesus. He spoke the word even from a distance, and they were healed. If you remember on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus uh, with his disciples, and, and they're on the boat, and the boat is rocking because of the waves and the sea, and it's getting ready to capsize. And they say, Lord, Lord, do you not care that we're going to perish? What does he do? He comes up to the bow of the boat, and he says, peace, be still. Even the wind and the sea and the waves obeyed this Lord. He has the power to merely speak the word, and it happens. This is the type of healing that happened to these 10 lepers. Well, we get three responses now, three responses to the healing. Verses 15 and 16 tell us the response of the Samaritan. It says there in verse 15 that he praised God. He praised God. He realized this was no mere magic trick. This is no mere coincidence. I recognize the mighty power of God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to worship him. It says that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. He's no longer standing at a distance. It also goes on to say that he was praising God with a loud voice. You can imagine the commotion, right? Here all of a sudden, Jesus just pronounced them, go visit the priest. They'll declare you clean. And all of a sudden, he probably goes on to the next thing, teaching or healing or talking with someone. All of a sudden, this commotion stirs up. Praise God, I'm healed. I'm healed. Jesus healed me. And it says that he fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Well, where was this Samaritan leper just a few moments before? 
Do you remember? He was standing off at a distance. All he could do was say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. But now he sees the healing power of Jesus. He experiences something, and now he falls on his face at Jesus' feet. You can imagine him right there, probably weeping, his tears falling at Jesus' feet and saying, thank you. I can come near you now. I can come near. Falling at his feet shows us a couple things. He acknowledged that he was truly clean. Now, I'm sure he was going to go to the priest eventually, okay? Now, these, these, other, these other nine guys, we presume that they're Jews, okay? Jesus told them to, to follow a, an Israelite, a Jewish command. Go show yourselves to the priest. And the Samaritan was probably on his way to do the same thing, but all of a sudden he's healed. And he realizes, before I go show myself to a priest, I'm going to go to the priest, I'm going to go to the one that not only can clean me, he can declare me to be clean before my fellow man. He went to the priest. Jesus could acknowledge that the Samaritan leper was truly clean. But not only that, he knew that he was, the Samaritan leper knew that he was accepted before God. He knew that he was accepted by Jesus. Despite his background, it's interesting to see in verse 18, Jesus calls this man a foreigner. A foreigner. He's outside of our community. This guy isn't one of us. He's a foreigner. However, he knows because of the compassion and power of Jesus that he could fall right at his feet and associate with Jesus. He knew this. In fact, we get a, a little bit of a commentary into the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans of the time. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 9, John comments and says that Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. This guy had a two strikes against him. Not only was he a leper, but he was a Samaritan leper. He was a foreigner. They, they, the Jews looked at, at the Samaritans as dogs. They were half-breeds, not only ethnically, but also religiously. They mixed true uh, Jewish worship of, of Yahweh with, with pagan idolatry. They blended them together. So the Jews looked at them as just mere dogs, half-breeds. But here the Samaritan, the Samaritan comes nearby. Amazing. God can take anybody and bring them near. He takes the worst of the worst. He takes the outcasts and he allows them come to his feet and worship and receive him and receive healing. Well, the Samaritan praised God. He fell at Jesus' feet, came near to him, and he gave him thanks. That's what it says there. Samaritan gave him thanks. The Samaritan wasn't merely just relieved or happy to experience a change in his circumstance. I'm sure all of the, all of the lepers were very thankful for the rest of their life. I am so grateful that I'm not a leper any longer and I could be here with all of you again. But there was only one, the Samaritan, that actually came and fell at Jesus' feet to say, thank you, thank you. It went beyond just being relieved or happy or just feeling some sort of superficial blessing. He was moved to come to the Lord and tell him, thank you. He didn't just enjoy the healing, he went to the healer. He didn't just enjoy the blessing. He went to the blesser. He loved the person. He loved Jesus. His gratitude moved him to worship the one that didn't just give him a new life and circumstances, but the one that could give him eternal life. He went to the life giver. 
This is the response of the, the Samaritan, the one that came back. Now, how about the nine now, the nine Jews? What happened with them? In fact, in verse, verses 17 and 18, Jesus asked the question, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Where are the nine? Didn't they experience my mighty power? Where are they? Where are the nine? Well, these nine, they cared more about ritual and they cared more about the ceremony more than they cared about the worship. They cared about the law that said, I better go get everything straightened out. I better go through the ritual of having a priest look at me. But they forgot the whole reason behind it. Worship. Worship. Thanksgiving. Gratitude. They cared nothing about worshiping the one who healed them. They only cared about the ritual, the ceremony, the superficial, the externals. They only cared about their circumstances rather than experiencing the one who gave them life. They saw Jesus as a means to an end rather than recognizing that the miracle was the means to lead them back to the giver of life, Jesus Christ. Jesus was saying, hey, you're missing the point. Where are the nine? Don't they know I can... Didn't they see the power that I just gave them? They can experience so much more. Where are the nine? Unfortunately, this was not a unique response to the power of Jesus. This kind of response, enjoying the blessing, ignoring the blesser, happened time and time again. If you remember the feeding of the 5,000 in the book, uh, book of John, chapter 6, when they came back the next day, they said, Hey, Lord, got any more lunch for us? Jesus said to them in John 6, 26 to 27, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs that point to him, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. They didn't want to hear it. John chapter 6, verse 66 goes on to say, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They enjoyed the blessing. They didn't want to have anything to do with the blesser. They just wanted to have their stomachs continue to be filled. Well, you know the story of Palm Sunday, a week before Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. What were they saying as he's riding on the, on the donkey and he's coming into the streets of Jerusalem? They waved palm branches at him and they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, here comes our king. But then just a few days later, they were chanting, crucify him, crucify him you know what, we don't want you to be our king any longer. We don't like what you have to offer us. This, unfortunately, was the response time and time again to the miracles of Jesus. You can imagine Jesus, through all, all of Palestine, he's doing these miracles and he's saying, here I am, I can give you life. You're missing me. You're missing me. He told the woman at the well, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask me to give you living water and I would give you water that would spring up in your soul for eternal life. You're missing me. The blessing, the gift, the miracle should not just satisfy you for a moment. It should point you to the one who gave it to you and I can give you eternal life forever. Where are the nine? Where are the nine? Well, Jesus gives us his response in verse 19 to the Samaritan, to the one that came back. He said, your faith has made you well. 
your faith has made you well. This was going beyond a superficial faith. Hey, you know what? I know God can, Jesus can give me what I want. He can give me what I want. It went beyond that. It went so much deeper. It was, in, it was inner belief on and trust in the Lord. And it was reflected in outward praise and thanks. You see, the reason that Jesus knew that a transformation had happened in his heart, apart from his omniscience, was that he could see it right before him. This man is different because he's come back to give me thanks. He's come back to say thank you, to give me praise. Something has happened inside the heart of this Samaritan leper. He's believed on me. Well, Jesus says, your faith has made you well. What's interesting there, that word for made you well is the same, is the same word in the New Testament for saved. Your faith has saved you. Just in the way we would talk about, I was saved from the penalty of my sins. I know that I'm going to heaven because I have a right relationship with him because I am saved. Jesus says, your faith has saved you this man came back to Jesus and he experienced a healing far deeper than the leprosy on his skin. He experienced a healing of the disease of sin that was also in his heart. Your faith has made you well. Well, let's take a look at four principles, at least four principles that we could take from this passage. Four principles. If you'd like to write these down, help yourself. I'm sure you could find more later as you Meditate on the scriptures here. Point, uh, principle number one. Just as these lepers, these 10 lepers, experienced the separation because of their disease, because of the disease of sin in every one of us, we are separated from God's holy presence. You see, this leprosy was just a mere symptom. The real problem that every single one of us have is that we've got the disease of sin in all of our hearts. And just like God was trying to show the Israelites, look, I'm holy, I'm perfect, no unclean thing can come before me. You must put the leper outside your presence to show us that he's holy. And so, because of our sin, we are outside of God's holy presence. We're alone. We are outside the camp of God's blessing. We are just like the lepers going about declaring unclean, unclean, unclean. We agree with David who said in Psalm 51, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. And behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. All the way back at conception, we're infected with this disease called sin and because of it before a holy God, we are unclean, unclean, unclean. We also agree with the prophet Isaiah in chapter six of Isaiah when he was placed in the third heaven before God and his holy angels, and he saw the throne room of heaven. What was his response? In verse 5 of Isaiah 6, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When you see a perfect holy God, all you can declare is unclean, unclean, unclean. Also in Isaiah 64, verses five through seven, it says, 
Behold, you, God, were angry, and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. You see that? God, because of our sin, actually hides his face from us. You are outside because of your uncleanliness. This may be totally foreign to anything you've ever learned in your life, but it is God's word. If you are outside of God's grace, if you have not come to Jesus Christ, me and you are unclean, unclean, separated. So principle number one, just as these lepers were separate outside the camp unclean because of the sin in our hearts, we too are alone, we are outside the camp, we are unclean, unclean before a just and holy God. Point number two. And I'm so glad the story goes on. Jesus, in spite of our uncleanliness, is full of compassion and full of mercy. And he's come to bear the pain and disease of sin so that we may be clean. To make it real short, Jesus is full of mercy. He's not afraid of your disease. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6. Would you turn there with me? Isaiah chapter 53. I'd like for you to see this for yourselves. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 6 say this. Speaking of the suffering servant, foretelling the suffering of Jesus, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see that there? Jesus coming, the hand of compassion, the servant of mercy comes down and he says, I will bear your diseases. Indeed, uh, Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says that Jesus bore our griefs. Literally, the word there is, he bore our sicknesses and carried our sorrows. Literally, for sorrows, it means pains. You can see that Jesus, knowing that we're far off, we're undeserving, we're away from his blessing, we're full of the disease of sin, and yet he says, I'm going to come. I'm going to bear your sicknesses. I'm going to bear your pains. I'm going to bear your burdens. Go ahead and God have your face be hidden from me because I will take their guilt upon myself. As deep as the disease of sin goes within us, Jesus went all the way to experience that sin, although he never sinned in himself. He was undeserving of it, yet he bore it in himself. Rather than running from us, Jesus pursued us that we may be healed, that we may be healed. What a merciful, tender compassionate Savior we have. Point number three, Jesus is the end, not 
a means to an end. Jesus is the end, not merely a means to an end. He is the prize. He is the blessing. Jesus said this as he was praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. If you want to know eternal life, trust in Jesus, and do you know what you get? You get to know God. He is the great end. The Samaritan came. The leprous Samaritan came and he said, I've been healed from this disease, but I know that there's something even better. I am going to the prize. I am going to Jesus. He is the highest blessing. He is eternal life. Jesus doing all these miracles, the whole purpose for them was they were a means to an end. John 20, verses 30 to 31 say, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs, the blessings, the signs in your life. Are there any signs in your life of God's blessing and his mercy and his grace upon you? You're breathing air right now. In him you live and move and have your being. It is a sign that God loves you. Oh, would you stop loving the blessing and start loving the blesser? Love him. Love him. He's not the means to the end. He is the end. Jesus is the blessing. Jesus is the life. He is the healing that these lepers were looking for. These 10 lepers, they were temporarily healed of their disease, but eventually they would die. They were going to die. It wasn't forever. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but I'll tell you right now, he's not walking around on the earth to this day. He died. It was a temporary blessing. It was a temporary manifestation of the power of God through Jesus so that all would see that eternal life was standing right before them. You can experience a temporary blessing in this life now, but oh, come and receive the one who is eternal life. We're all gonna gather around tables, at least I pray that you will, table with families and fr family and friends this coming Thursday to give thanks. And I know that there are many that you hear, you know, it's, it's a good time of year. You hear people saying, I'm thankful for this. At least they're recognizing the blessing. But how many take the time to actually bow the knee and say, Jesus, thank you. Lord, thank you. How grateful is it to, to merely just say, well, I sure am glad I'm out of that mess. I sure am glad I got food on the table today. I sure am glad I have a pillow to lay my head on, on tonight. But to actually turn and say, but I want to tell you, thank you. Thank you. I want to give thanks to the one who is the blesser, rather than just hoarding the blessing for myself. While all of these 10 lepers received a temporary blessing of healing, there was only one that received eternal life. Let me ask you, what are you seeking? Why are you here this morning? Are you coming because you, you just need another dose of blessing? Or did you come to receive the eternal blesser. Do you merely just want the gift? Or are you ready to bow down like the Samaritan leper and say, I want the giver. I want Jesus. 
He's not merely a means to my own selfish end. He is the greatest end I could ever experience. In him is eternal life. Again, principle number three, Jesus is the end. He's not merely the means to an end. Fourthly and finally, principle we could take from this passage, the language of those who truly know Jesus is the language of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the language of heaven. The healed Samaritan was not just merely relieved that he was healed, he was moved to tell Jesus, thank you, thank you. Jesus saw the Samaritan and, and he saw that, wow, here is the language of someone who knows me. Here is the language of someone that will be with me one day in paradise. The language of heaven is the language of thanksgiving. Heaven will be filled with those who give thanks, which then in turn must make us ask if we aren't willing to tell him thank you, will we be in heaven? True citizens of heaven are thankful people. They love to tell the master, thank you, thank you. Revelation chapter four, verses 11 to 14 say, then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the language of heaven does thanksgiving fill your mouth? Do you see that, that he is the end, that you want to come like the leper and bow down and say, thank you, thank you. I was outside the camp. I was full of disease. I was full of infection. You healed me. Thank you, Jesus. We sang the song this morning. I called. You answered and you came to my rescue. I could hear, this, this, this might be the song that the leper sang. Oh Jesus, I called. I was far off. All I could do at a distance was say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I'm unclean, have mercy. I called, you answered, and you came to my rescue, and now I want to be where you are. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is the type of language of a person that has eternal life. This is the language of heaven. You came to my rescue. I want to be with you. The beauty of heaven is not streets of gold. It's not uh, gates of pearl. It's Jesus. It's Jesus forever and ever and ever. We're going to give him thanks. Is this your language? It is the language of heaven of those who truly know Jesus, of those who have experienced eternal life. 
Revelation 7, 9 through 12 goes on to describe it. It says, I looked and behold, there was a great multitude. And this multitude sang out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I hope you don't get tired of worship. We're going to be doing it forever and ever. We're going to say, I called. You answered. You came to my rescue, and now I get to be where you are forever and ever and ever. Have you come to the feet of Jesus? Have you come to his feet? Are you more enamored with the gift and ignore the giver? I know Christmas is just a month away, right? <laughs> and you've seen the scene before. Maybe you're still a part of it. <laughs> you go downstairs, you rip open the present, and you can't wait to use it, right? Whatever it is, you know, a new video game system, a new cell phone, or a new bike, you know? I had a trampoline set outside one year for my kids. They came out, whoa, this trampoline started jumping on it. It's exciting to see. But sometimes you sit back and you wonder, uh, hey, you know, I, I paid for that. <laughs> I got that for you. You know, maybe I even stood and camped outside of, you know, one of the retail stores for the last five days, you know, and get in there for Black Friday. Can I get some thanks? But sometimes we're that way. We get so enamored with the gift. You, you wrap open the present. I want the blessing. I want the blessing. I want the gift. Oh, no. The gift is found in Jesus Christ. He is the gift. We're going to celebrate in just a few moments. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's an opportunity for us to remember what he did and then respond just like the Samaritan to come before him, to come at his feet and say, Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. That's what we love about baptism. There's going to be people, and I know they're probably nervous, they're going to come before you and they're just going to say, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was outside, but now I've been brought near. I just want to tell Jesus, thank you. I love him. I love him. A few questions as we close. Thanksgiving. Receiving the giver and not merely the gift. Seeing Jesus as the end and not merely the means. Is this your attitude? Is this your joy? Is Jesus your life or are you looking for more blessings to just give you a temporary fix? Another way to put it, are you the one? Or would Jesus look out over this congregation and say, I know there are some that enjoy me, but where are the nine? There's so many blessings represented in these pews here this morning. So many blessings. Would God look over us and say, where are the nine? Where are the nine that have come to enjoy me, to enjoy the eternal life that I'm giving? Will you take the time this Thanksgiving to not just say, I'm thankful for, but to turn your face and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you. Don't just be superficially thankful, meaning you're just enamored with the blessing, but failing to bow down, adore, and give thanks to the great giver. And I ask you, are you the one? Or would Jesus look at you and say, where are the nine? Where are the nine? 
Jesus is the great end. Let's give him thanks. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. It cuts to my heart. I look at this passage, I've been thinking about it for over a week now, and I've been asking myself, where would I be? Would I be running just to enhance my blessing, or would I be coming to the giver, bowing down, weeping at the feet of Jesus, saying, thank you, I called, you answered, you came to my rescue, I want to be near you, thank you. Oh, Father, do a work in our hearts that we would be the one, that we would be the Samaritan that would say, thank you, Lord, for saving me. That we would tell friends and family this Thanksgiving season to say, I am not just thankful, but I know the giver. I know the one who's given me eternal life. And I want to tell him, thank you. Do you know him? Make us a thankful people. Let us be counted among the one and not the nine, Father. We thank you that we get to celebrate your work for us, how you rescued us, how you saved us from the infection and disease of sin. We get to celebrate the mercy and compassion of our Lord who bore our sins, who bore our diseases, who bore our sicknesses on a bloody cross. We thank you for him. He is the greatest blessing. He is eternal life. We thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.